0: check check All right, everybody, we'll go ahead and get started here. I'm still waiting on my notes from Pastor Thab, but we'll see what we can do anyway. First things first, okay, so you guys probably know there's like been a sinus thing going around. Uh, I don't know, I've heard Omicron, I've heard cold, I've heard allergies are really bad this year, uh, which I think people say every year, don't they? Um But anyway, I had it last week. I'm totally good now, but I've got my cough drops. I got my tissues. I got my water. Hopefully God shows grace to my throat. throat) And on that note, let's pray to start. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for showing grace. Thank you for showing mercy uh, in um, ways that we cannot possibly earn or... um, draw from you, but you show it uh, even to undeserving sinners. We're going to look at undeserving sinners uh, in our class this morning, and we pray that you would show us what you would have us to know from their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Well, my notes are still on the way. I'm actually going to see if, if I minimize that. It still shows up there, doesn't it? Okay, I can use my computer then. All right, so I wasn't here last week, uh, but I was listening to Pastor Thad's talk online, and I was just thinking about how uh, we've had different styles of teaching in this class. We've had Pastor Thad, who's very conversational and pastoral. You've probably noticed we have Dwayne, who's academic and uh, very engaging, like a fancy documentary, I think. <laughs> that, was, that was the goal. Yeah. <laughs> whatever whatever gets it done. Huh? Uh then you you've got me um and my style, I I guess I'm more like a like a class lecturer, almost. Uh the the reason for that being you you might be wondering uh what's Andrew doing up there with those guys? Um, and believe me, I've asked the same question. Uh Thank you, sir. He's really shorting us on content today I you 10 pages. <laughs> I, I learned that if I don't write it down, it doesn't come out of my mouth. So uh, I just write everything down. Anyway, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to spend a couple years uh, doing missions work in Africa and met a whole bunch of wonderful pastors. Uh, it was interdenominational and uh, during my time there and after that, I've kind of developed a burden of making theological education more accessible to African pastors. So hopefully my plan is to go back over there. I'm getting a degree through uh, Covenant Baptist Seminary. Uh, so that's that's kind of what Pastor Thad has been gracious and let me get some practice in since I want to teach church history on that side of the world. Uh, give, me, give me a chance to teach it on this side. Uh, but that's that's kind of where my style comes from if you will kind of more of a class lecture style reading off of notes and whatnot but even with the different styles of teaching um, I think you've probably noticed we've we've tried to have a common theme throughout this class of telling church history through the lens of the stories of people real people in history Uh, I mean you remember all the way back in the first class I don't know if you remember I talked about a slave girl named Blandina Pastor Thad and I talked about in that very first class just the concept of telling church history as people's stories. History is God working in the lives of real people to build his church throughout the generations. And, uh, of course, coming from that, you see another theme arising in this class you've probably picked up on. Um, When you tell people's stories, you learn quickly that even the giants of the faith and history have clay feet, like Pastor Thad mentioned last week. St. Augustine had a child with a concubine. Martin Luther, the other reformers, they all had their issues. we were familiar with those. But today, we have the privilege of looking at the one group of Christians in church history who didn't have clay feet. They were brilliant, upstanding, blameless giants of the faith who never did or said anything wrong. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, I'm talking about the 17th century particular Baptists. (laughs) I'm obviously uh, kidding, but We are going to be looking at the Particular Baptists a little bit toward the end of the lecture. We're kind of transitioning from um, the Reformation study that Pastor Thad has walked us through the past few weeks to now post-Reformation and some of the developments there. Uh, But before we get to the Particular Baptists, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of things to give context in the early 1600s. um, Most importantly the event that proved to be definitional in the development of Reformed Protestant theology, and that would be the Synod of Dort. We're going to talk about that to start. Now that I have my notes, I can go back to this. All right, we're going to start off with a guy named Jacob Arminius, which is a name that probably is familiar to you guys. There we go. Is that him? There we go. Uh, Yeah, Jacob Arminius. Okay, he was born around 1560, and he was a controversial man who claimed to hold to the Belgic Confession. And if you're not familiar with the Belgic Confession, that was uh, written right around the same time Arminius was born, around the early 1560s. And it was written to be presented as the standard of Protestantism after the Reformation. Uh, so while, while Arminius affirmed and, and said that he held to the Belgic Confession, uh, he was kind of teaching against it as well. And uh, whenever he was asked by the larger academic community to kind of explain what he meant by that, he, uh, he always found a way to decline. He didn't really speak publicly that much. Arminius was a man of upstanding moral integrity, He was committed to the pietism of the Reformation, but he often hid behind a shroud of vague criticisms of orthodoxy. And to use a modern metaphor, he was like a guy who would post really provocative tweets, and then when asked to expound on those tweets, he would uh, be silent. So, just kind of hid in the shadows a little bit. Uh, Just a little bit about his upbringing, or his, his studies, I guess. His university studies began in Leiden in the Netherlands. Um, that's the green up there next to England, if you can't see it up there. Uh, I I tried to find a map that wasn't quite so busy, but it's pretty messy up there. But anyway, Netherlands is up there, the green one. Um, It was a liberal arts school. It was technically a reformed university. Excuse me. and when I say Reformed, Reformed was synonymous with, you know, Protestant teaching at the time. It was technically a Reformed university, but the faculty there came with a whole range of opinions about philosophy and theology. There was one professor there who called the god of Calvinism a tyrant, Uh, so clearly the seeds of what would become what we call Arminianism was they were being planted in Arminius's theology, and I mean, we can all think of modern examples of this, right? You know, seminaries, we can all think of a seminary that's labeled as theologically conservative, but some of the faculty are like, oh, I, I read something you posted online, and it was definitely iffy. That's kind of the situation he was in. He went on to study, actually, in Geneva in Switzerland, which is the red one there, kind of in the center of, of Europe. You know where Switzerland is, obviously. <clears throat> he was actually studying under Theodore Beza, who was mentored by John Calvin and succeeded him in leadership. So, he was under the top dog of Reformed theology in Geneva, and he had to leave eventually because of his philosophical views were drawing heat from Beza and other leaders in in Geneva. So, he continued his studies in Basel, which was also in Switzerland. All right, so in, in 1588, he was not quite 30 years old, and he, uh, Jacob Arminius, was ordained to preach in Amsterdam, and it was in Amsterdam as a preacher that he was starting to develop views that were contrary to Orthodox Reformed theology. Uh, There's a couple of specific examples from history. Uh, He was first, he was asked to preach a series of sermons against uh, a man who had there was a preacher who had preached against the doctrine, the Calvinistic doctrines of predestination. And Arminius was asked, will you preach a series of sermons refuting that preacher? And Arminius started studying the doctrine of predestination and said, I'm not really sure where I I fall on this. He didn't preach the the series. So he, he kind of drew some flack for that. And then later in his pastoral ministry, he preached through the book of Romans uh, chapter Seven was a point of contention. He taught that Paul was describing an unregenerate man who was living under conviction of sin prior to faith, and that chapter seven does not describe a genuinely repentant Christian or regenerate Christian. And at the time that was um, an outlying opinion, uh, probably I guess still is today. Um, but people a few people actually at that time called him Pelagian, which would hearken back to Pelagius uh, and Augustine. <clears throat> and then, of course, he came to Romans 9, as one does when they preach through Romans. And historical accounts say that he, he focused on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, not God's eternal decree in Romans 9. He didn't necessarily say anything unorthodox uh, in his in his treatment of chapter nine, but he didn't really talk about what Paul talked about in Romans chapter nine. <laughs> so, and I mean that's that's how a lot of uh, our Arminian brothers would approach Romans nine today. Uh, so the changes in his theology were subtle and gradual, but it's important to remember that God's decree of election would become the number one issue of the Arminian remonstrance. We're going to talk about that shortly and the subsequent Synod of Dort. Uh, Just as a pastor, Arminius was uh, committed to his people. Uh, There was an outbreak of the plague in Amsterdam, and he walked around the city taking food and water to people when no one else would. He would go into people's homes. So he was well known within the community as uh, someone who cared about people. Uh, But during all of these developing theological controversies, Arminius was actually invited to be a professor at the University of Leiden, where he had studied in his early studies before he went to Geneva. And that's where uh, he began to be critical of the Belgic Confession a little bit more publicly, and he called for revisions of the Belgic Confession. But even, even at this time, criticisms of Arminius's theology were hard to formulate because he wasn't a famous theologian or a famous preacher. He never published any of his writings. So how could anyone refute him publicly when he wasn't really making any public claims necessarily? Well, the year before Arminius died, he died in uh, 1609. And in 1608, he was finally called forth by the Dutch government to give an account of all of his teachings, he claimed that the Calvinist view of predestination was contrary to scripture and historic Christianity, and he outlined his understanding of predestination. He put forward a four-decree theology, and only the fourth of the four decrees actually talked specifically about predestination. Um, <clears throat> he, he said, God, he said, Armenia said, was... His predestination of salvation was based on his foreknowledge of who would accept his grace, which is something sounds pretty familiar, you know. <laughs> uh, God looked down the corridor of time and saw those who would choose him, and those are the ones he predestined. And of course, that debate goes all the way back to Augustine and Pelagius and the age of the early church, but it was really during this time that non-Augustinian perspective became more mainstream, and then Arminius uh, declined in health, and he was unable to continue debating his theology, and he died the next year. So he wasn't even really able to um, expound a whole lot on what he meant by those those four points. But then his, you know, he had students, and he had followers who came afterward, <clears throat> and they would uh, they would go on to kind of clarify and, and try to um, systematize his theology. They they banded together to to kind of collect it all in one work. Okay, so this this systemization is known as the Arminian Remonstrance, and it was submitted for consideration in 1610, the year after Jacob Arminius died. Yeah, and in some ways, the Arminian Remonstrance came from a desire for freedom of churches to have opposing theology, uh, religious liberty was the issue at stake, even though uh, the theology was the main body of the writing, but it wasn't necessarily the theology itself that was the, the main issue. Religious liberty was what the followers of Arminius were interested in. <clears throat> Pastor Thad talked last week about all the monarchs, the hodgepodge, the back and forth, you know, what, what state sponsored religion will allow me to marry or divorce whoever I want. And the followers of Jacob Arminius uh, wanted the freedom to find their place in society. They wanted to collect their theology into an organized confession of faith and present it to both political and church leaders as an accepted system of thought. But then you have King James, not the second greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, The real King James, James I, the King James who was behind the uh, King James Bible, Samuel Miller, a historian, says that King James was, quote, a man of very small mind and of still less moral or religious principle. But he was born into a Calvinistic community, and he became king. And he loved meddling in affairs that he knew very little about. So as king, he called for a synod. A synod, by the way, is just a a gathering of churches or church leaders, to formulate a response to the Arminian remonstrance. Oh, I, I don't know. It, it wasn't just King James personally. Um, the Dutch Reformed church leaders were calling for this Synod, and he joined in with them, but he definitely was part of it. Uh, James I was an irreligious man who played the part as a conservative Christian just to exercise authority in the kingdom. But in God's sovereignty, he was an instrument in bringing clarity to certain issues. Without getting too political, I think we can see uh, some modern parallels there. The Armenians complained that the synod shouldn't happen. So you, you basically you have the Dutch church leaders calling for a synod, and up in England you have James uh, agreeing to have this synod. And the Armenians said, well, we don't want this synod to happen because the outcome, they said, has already been determined. Uh, And they were pretty much right on that. I mean, it was a gathering of Calvinists to discuss Arminian theology. Obviously, they were going to condemn it. But the Synod of Dort happened anyway in the Netherlands in 1618 and 19. Originally, it was just going to be the pastors from the Netherlands convening at Dortrecht, which is where we get the name Synod of Dort. But King James up in England insisted that the church leaders from Britain attend. There were delegates from France... It turned out to be something of a Reformed ecumenical council. I don't know if we've talked about ecumenical councils or defined that word in this class, but that basically just means worldwide. Um, churches from all around Christendom, or in this case, Reformed churches from all around Christendom. Uh, actually, it's, it's really the only <clears throat> Reformed worldwide gathering in history, in one sense. All right, so we'll we'll talk a little bit about, oh, you know what I forgot to do? I forgot to show you King James. There he is. A dashing-looking fellow. All right, we'll go to, we'll, we'll talk about the theology of the Arminian Remonstrance and then the, the Synod of Dort, which resulted in the Canons of Dort. We'll start with the Arminian Remonstrance. <clears throat> The Remonstrance, historically, has been summarized in five points, which the followers of Arminius felt adequately contained his teaching. This is from uh, Roger Nicole. He's a historian. The five points are, you can read them there, God elects or reproves on the basis of foreseeing faith or unbelief. That's, you know, looking down the corridors of time, like we said. Christ died for all men and every man, although only believers are saved which we call universal atonement or general atonement. Man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary unto faith or any good work. They did affirm that salvation was by God's grace. They didn't deny that, uh, much like Pelagius had done in Augustine's day. But they said, point number four there, this grace may be resisted. And then the fifth point, excuse me, whether all who are truly regenerate will certainly persevere in the faith is a point which needs further investigation. And later they did affirm that truly regenerate Christians can lose their salvation, but by then there was already a mixed bag of opinions within the Armenian community, and actually most Armenians today would affirm some form of eternal security. So it's important to remember that these five points came before the five points of Calvinism. The five points of Calvinism actually were five points of response by the Dutch Reformed Church to the five points of the Armenian Remonstrance. And we'll get to those now. The five responses of Dort. In the gathering, the church leaders reviewed arguments for the Armenians and responded with five answers which we've come to know as the five points of Calvinism. You've got divine predestination, you've got the redemptive atonement of Christ, the corruption of man, the manner of conversion, and the perseverance of the saints. And if, if you go with the uh, the acrostic, you'll notice that's kind of out of order. That's actually, it's ultip. Uh, and the reason why it was ultip at the time was because the doctrine of election and predestination was the main point of the Arminians. You remember from the, the previous slide, that first point was God elects or reproves on the basis of foreseen faith. So they really were attacking the reformed, the current, you know, reformed definition of predestination or election. So that was the canons of Dort's first response. And then over time we we've changed it into the nice uh, Flowery acrostic, the tulip. <clears throat> so at, at this time, the, the Synod of Dort officially condemned the uh, articles of Arminianism, the remonstrance, as heresy, but the movement was already rapidly growing, uh, not only in the mainland in Europe, but especially in England. So that was kind of a development in that sense as well. And I, I want to talk a little bit about application, uh, because to the average, common farmer with his wife and kids working a farm in France, you know, uh, the Canons of Dort. So what? <laughs> it's a bunch of brainy churchmen arguing in the Netherlands. How does it relate to everyday life? And you might be wondering the same thing. Um, Let's try to answer it because this actually was a very big deal to the Calvinists of the time. There was already a growing rise of Pietism. Protestant Reformation quickly turned into personal and practical Reformation. It kind of was the whole time. But um, John Calvin even wrote in his preface to the Institutes that the purpose of his writing was quote to transmit certain foundational principles by which those who are touched by any zeal for religion might be shaped to true godliness. So for Calvin, theology was experiential, it was practical. And I I think in large part that was because prior to the Reformation, people were Catholic just because that's what you were. And after the Reformation, amid this milieu of political scrambling for power that Pastor Thad talked about last week, Uh, People either identified as Catholic or Protestant, just because that's what you did. It was largely a cultural or political identifier for a lot of people. So it wasn't long after the Reformation that theologians, John Calvin being an example, sought to show how right theology led not just to right living, but to transformed living. You've got William Ames. That might be a name that some of you are familiar with. Uh, He's one of the more influential theologians leading up to the Synod of Dort, he wrote a book called The Marrow of Theology, in which he defined theology as the doctrine of living to, unto God. That's, I think that's why when you read the Puritans, uh, I know a lot of us like to read the Puritans. At face value, they can almost sound legalistic, I think, in a lot of ways. That's because they were primarily concerned with the cultural Christianity of the day that didn't reflect real inward change. Pastor Thad, uh, I was listening to his his, uh, talk from last week, he mentioned that too. You can say the right things, you can affirm the right doctrines, accept the right arguments, but has God got down to your heart? That's what the post-Reformation Puritans were interested in. The participants of the Synod of Dort weren't just concerned with getting doctrine right, they wanted the canons of Dort to reach people where they were and affect real change. Let's look at an example of this. Um, we're going to talk about the doctrine of election, which was the primary tenet of the Synod of Dort, the Arminian Remonstrance and then the Synod of Dort. The idea that God in eternity past chose for himself a people for salvation to be redeemed from sin by his gracious choice alone. It's a wonderful doctrine, but what does it look like in everyday life? I've got First Thessalonians up there on the screen. I'll go ahead and read that for us water first Paul writes for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you and the Greek word for chosen there is elected we we know brothers loved by God that he has elected you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a lot to unpack there, uh, and I'm not getting paid to preach, so I will. Uh, But you can see the incredibly practical application of the doctrine of election. How did Paul, Silas, and Timothy know that God had elected the Thessalonian Christians? First and foremost, you have the power of the gospel there in verse 5. Paul had confidence that the powerful demonstration of the gospel resulted in the salvation of the Thessalonian church or the believers in the church, and that's an evidence of salvation. That, for Paul, is always the foundation of his confidence, the gospel itself. But beyond that, the gospel he preached to the Thessalonians actually resulted in tangible changes in their lives. You have... The fact that they imitated seasoned saints there in verse six they received the word with affliction and joy of the holy spirit also verse six they became examples to others verse seven they proclaimed the gospel in missionary endeavors in verse eight they turned from idols to serve god verse nine and then last there in verse 10 they joyfully and patiently awaited christ's return so you can see that the doctrine of election is incredibly practical theology and you can apply it in your own life right now. Are you facing affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit? Are you imitating mature saints? Are you turning from the pull of idols in your heart and seeking to serve God? Are you awaiting Christ's return? I, I was just up in prayer with, with some of the guys who, who gather for a prayer at 8.30. You should join us if you don't have anything going on at 8.30. Dave Owens was praying and he he was praying about the return of Christ and it was powerful. Are you awaiting Christ's return? If so, you can have the same confidence in your election as Paul did in the Thessalonians. The church leaders at the Synod of Dort weren't just arguing over theological terms. They had a desire to see the Christian community made up of, to be made up of real Christians. All right. So that's Synod of Dort, Canons of Dort, any questions, comments, concerns? All right, while well, all this was going on, uh, all this being the Arminians saying that one council couldn't speak for all of Protestantism, and they continued to preach what Jacob Arminius had handed down to him, like I said, uh, Arminianism was, was spreading quickly. There was a development of independent churches in England. While King James was putting his hands on everything, some of the independents, or the separatists, sought freedom in the New World. So you had a group of 109 passengers, crew of 25, they board the Mayflower in 1620, and they sail across the Atlantic. And that's a story we're all familiar with, I'm sure. So yeah, we're not getting too much into American church history today, Uh, Pastor Thad, you'll have Plenty of fun stories to tell, I'm sure. There were some independent and separatist Christians who stayed in England, and they did pay a price for it. And we're going to hear about a famous prisoner in a minute. But uh, before that, we, we have a kind of a tale here of which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Um, you can get really bogged down in the weeds of early English Baptist church history. Um, I'll just, I'll summarize by saying that there were independent churches uh, who didn't submit to a national church in the early 1600s, and also churches that practiced baptism by immersion, coming from the the re-baptizers or the Anabaptists. But the earliest known Baptist congregations were general Baptists, meaning they held a general view of the atonement. They were separate from the Reformers, not only in church governance, but also in theology. They sounded a lot more like Jacob Arminius than John Calvin. And James Renehan, he's a a pretty trusted historian, specifically for Baptist history, uh, Reformed Baptist history. He says that uh, Baptists who rejected a general atonement in favor of the Calvinistic particular atonement can be traced to one specific church in London, which was founded in 1616. The founding pastor of that church was Henry Jacob And he passed on leadership to John Lathrop and Henry Jesse. I don't know if any of those names sound familiar to you. They were the first pastors of this church that we can maybe kind of trace particular Baptist church history back to. There was a a struggle at this time. This is, you know, 1616. We're, We're getting ready to have the Synod of Dort, right? We've had the Arminian Remonstrance. The Synod of Dort is yet to come. There was a struggle at this time to define Reformed theology. So these Baptists who affirmed the canons of Dort eventually when they, when they were written up, they were more focused on the local church than necessarily the finer details of theology. They, they simply affirmed the canons of Dort. And I, I think we're, we're familiar with that in our context too. Congregationalism is one of the main tenants of Baptist churches, uh, right? It's right up there with baptism. That's That goes all the way back to the early beginnings of the Baptist church. So after James I, you have Charles I uh, taking over as King of England. He was a, a pretty nasty guy by all accounts, and whereas James I wanted to have his hands on everything but didn't really, I don't want to use the word persecute even for Charles I, but Persecute, for lack of a better word. Um, Charles I, by contrast, he wanted to rid England of the Puritans. But he was actually so busy fighting what would become Parliament. And there was a time when there wasn't a British Parliament. England entered into a civil war. Oliver Cromwell, that might be a name that you're familiar with, he gained power at that time. There was a period of time when churches basically had freedom to do whatever they wanted in England. And it was actually in that time that was really crucial for the formation of the development of independent Baptist churches. But before all of that, you have uh, the English Parliament calling for an assembly at Westminster. There's the Westminster Assembly. That was in the year 1643. And what came from that was the Westminster Confession of Faith, and which we usually associate the Westminster Confession of Faith with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. But it's interesting to note that there were several Congregationalists present and in independents, uh, even though the vast majority of those who signed that confession were Presbyterians, who, you know, at the time Presbyterian, still I guess, but Presbyterian meaning a national church mentality, uh, Presbyteries. So, probably the most famous of the dissenting brethren of the independents, that's that's what they call themselves, Uh, Thomas Goodwin was was present at that assembly. That might be a name you're familiar with. He's written several books that are pretty popular in Puritan reformed circles. Jeremiah Burroughs was there. He wrote the book The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you haven't read that one, you definitely should. Uh, Philip Nye was there. You might not know that name, but Apparently, that's Philip Nye, one of those two guys standing up. I don't know. This was a painting that was done after that. Um, he, was a dissent, he was dissenting to the Presbyterian church model. So these guys weren't necessarily Baptists, but they did have close connections with the Baptists, and they were dissenting from this very important assembly. So, oh, by the way, side note, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, the rare jewel of Christian contentment, that guy... On his way back home from the Westminster Assembly, he fell off his horse and he died. Okay. Um, because Baptists had connections with the men who were at the Westminster who were dissenting at the Westminster Assembly, uh, and because the government of England was too busy with itself to pay attention to independent churches, the first particular Baptist churches arose during this time. And so a year year after the Westminster Confession of Faith was written, the particular Baptists wrote their own version, which was basically the Westminster Confession with modifications on the doctrines of the church and baptism. They actually copied, word for word, a lot of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they did that to show that they were unified with Reformed theology. They weren't trying to go off the rails kind of like Jacob Arminius was. And that debate continues to this day. So after the Civil War, religious toleration ended, and it ended hard. Charles II, who was the oldest son of Charles I, became king, and all churches had to officially register with the Church of England, which, of course, put immense pressure on independent churches, including the Baptists. So we're going to finish up here today looking at one independent preacher who served time in prison for his commitment to the church. Any guesses? John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. All right, you can, you can see from the dates there uh, of his life, he lived right in the middle of all of this mess <laughs> that was going on. Yes, sir? John Owen, yeah, he was the personal, you know, took there and yeah, too, so yeah, he was a big man yeah. All right, let's see. Okay, um, Bunyan was a convert. Convert later in life. Uh, he had he served time fighting in the Civil War. Actually, the, the English Civil War. He was converted in the 1650s. Uh, and after he was converted, he was preaching regularly at his church and also anywhere people would listen to him. He was probably a Baptist, uh, although he he was the kind of guy who was like, "Let's all just get along." So he he, he wasn't necessarily as um, militant as others might have been. So his preaching drew the ire of of the royalty. they they got onto him for it. They arrested him in 1660. He was the first of many preachers who would be arrested. That uh, 1660 was the same year that Charles II came to power, actually, so he, he got right to it whenever he became king. Bunyan was given a three-month sentence in prison, and he was told that he would be released if he apologized for preaching and signed an affidavit not to preach again. Which, when I was reading that, I thought, well, that's just like, you remember a few weeks ago I talked about the Waldensians? Uh, Peter Waldo had to travel to Rome to get permission from the Pope to preach. And when the Pope didn't give him permission, he went and preached anyway. He had to go into exile and travel around. It's the same case here, except instead of a Pope, you have King Charles II, who wanted to have his thumb on everything. So Bunyan wouldn't sign the affidavit, and his three-month sentence turned into 12 long, hard years in prison. His wife of 10 years had died before he went to prison, leaving him with four children. He remarried. While he was in prison, his new wife and his children had to do whatever they could to scrap up enough money for food, including food for John Bunyan, because at that time, prisons didn't give prisoners food. So they had to, his family had to bring, He actually I think I read he had a blind daughter who would uh, sell shoestrings. So they, they lived in abject poverty. You've got a struggling family, they're barely eating, they're working a small farm. You can go take care of them and provide for them. All you have to do is say sorry. All you have to do is agree not to preach. Bunyan wouldn't do it. In all those years in prison, Bunyan had a Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs. And he had his writing materials. And while he sat in prison, we all know this story, I think, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which is considered the second most read book in history after the Bible. (coughs) Bunyan was eventually released and he continued to preach and he served a second prison sentence. That one was just six months long. And uh, you can see by the date there, Bunyan died in 1688. The year that he died, the so-called Glorious Revolution happened, and that overthrew the current king, which was after Charles II, it was James II. And in 1689, a year after Bunyan died, the Toleration Act of 1689 was passed, and the freedom of religion was established as it stands today. That same year, particular particular Baptist churches gathered in London and penned the Second London Baptist Confession, which remains to this day the defining document of Reformed Baptist theology. And then some names that I jotted down there to remember, uh, you've got Nehemiah Cox and Benjamin Keach. Cox is generally accredited with at least being one of the writers of the Second London Baptist Confession, although there was even then a lot of just copy and paste from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, and then you have Benjamin Keach. He he wrote the Baptist Catechism in the mid 1600s. So, all right, I am done. I'm going to close. Since we're talking about John Bunyan, I'm going to close with a quote here. God's grace is the most incredible and insurmountable truth ever to be revealed to the human heart, which is why God has given us His Holy Spirit to superintend the process of more fully revealing the majesty of the work done on our behalf by our Savior. He teaches us first to first cling to and then enables us to adore with the faith he so graciously supplies. The mercy of God. This mercy has its cause and effect in the work of Jesus on the cross. That's a good, good quote to close with, I think. Any questions or comments or anything? Yes, sir. One quick question. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the first London Confession then? Yes. That was the first one. And then there was I, I didn't talk about like the Savoy Declaration of Faith. That also kind of came out of that. And so the first one, the first Baptist Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration were basically what became the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Yeah. Cool. All right. You guys are dismissed. Fun. anyway really, really good thank really you really good. Sure. Thanks, Thanks. sir